0: Welcome to episode 554 of Troubadours and on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with historian, author, professor David Brokaw. We talk with David from his place in Tempe, Arizona, about his background. Rod Sterling and he being from upstate New York. Traveling the South and Europe. The Twilight Zone. How the world is not just fun and games. Critical thinking. His book, Monsters on Maple Street. The Twilight Zone and the Post-War American Dream. Happiness and being mentally healthy. Subversive TV shows. The history of madness. Norman Lear being a humanitarian. Damned eternal questions. The loss of sadness. A cup of instant smile. Living in the dynamic human condition, among other things. A grand conversation with David Brokaw this go-round. We also have an E.W. Poetic piece titled "Tobacco," And all of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it, then. Episode 554 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. David Brokaw, is that you? It is me. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
1: Thank you, EW. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, before we get started, let me share a little background information for our listeners. Dr. David J. Brokaw is a professor of history at the University of Advancing Technology. Dr. Brokaw specializes in the cultural and social history of the United States. He is the author of Monsters on Maple Street, The Twilight Zone, and the Post-War American Dream, a cultural history that shows how the influential television series critiqued post-war social norms and eluded censorship by using science fiction, horror, and fantasy. His classes include the history of mass media, the history of madness, the American Dream, the history of race and class in America and The Twilight Zone in post-war America. His courses frequently use music, art, film, popular culture, and other forms of digital media to make a history class come alive and spark critical thought and discussion. And I'm sure that's what we're going to have here right now. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have Dr. David J. Brokaw on the program. Again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I don't know if you're dealing with finals and such right now.
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed. yes. Uh, currently uh, grading a lot of final papers and and final projects. but yeah, i'm I'm happy to take time out and happy to have this conversation with you.
0: Thank you. and i I guess we're talking with you from your place in uh, Tempe, Arizona.
1: That is correct. yep.
0: great, great. And um, well, let's get started. tell Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, you know where do you come from? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, uh,
1: very convoluted and and winding road, (laughs) you could say. Uh, But I actually am originally from upstate New York. I grew up in and around the Albany, New York area. Um, And coincidentally, uh, Rod Serling was also an upstate New Yorker from from Binghamton. Right. Um, So we have that connection going on. Um, But I I, I grew up in New York. Um, I actually... Um, yeah, did quite a bit of traveling, I, I went to uh, a liberal arts school uh, in Kentucky, actually, Center College, uh, and a lot of the reason I did that was uh, to study abroad, they had some amazing study abroad programs, and um, spent some time in, in Turkey, in Russia, in, in England, um, you know, went on, uh, taught uh, English for a while in Spain, uh, lived in Spain for a year. Um, and of course, I, I eventually did my Ph.D. in Louisiana at LSU um, and uh, eventually uh, made my way out here uh, to Arizona uh, in 2018. Uh, so it's it's been a very interesting and, and kind of unpredictable ride, you could say.
0: Yeah, that sounds fun. And I'm sure there were tough times. But overall, what a what a, a, a great uh Set of opportunities for you to grow as an individual, right? For sure, for sure. And and your fascination with the twilight zone. I'm trying to gar- garner your um, generation and what generation you're a part of. Like I'm an Xer. I'm mm-hmm. a, uh, myself. How about you?
1: For sure. So I'm so I'm just after you. I I am an elder millennial.
0: <laughs> <laughs> an elder millennial. That's cool. Uh, so the twilight zone in a way, you, did you have to seek it out? Because I don't know if it was so present on, on, uh, television sets and, and, and the like.
1: Yeah. It, it's interesting. My, uh, my first introduction to the show, I think is quite similar to a, a lot of folks, especially of my generation. Um, really my main, uh, exposure to it was on the sci-fi channel, um, and particularly around New Year's, because uh, they always do the New Year's uh, Eve and New Year's Day marathon at the Twilight Zone, and they still do that. In fact, so it's it's cool. It's it's a very kind of longstanding tradition uh, that they've had that that's still going on. And uh, for me, I was never like a huge person to go out and you know go to these huge New Year's parties and all that. So. Uh, You know, I I absolutely just loved just kind of chilling on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and watching The Twilight Zone and and just totally got uh, sucked into the show um, as a teenager. Um, Just absolutely loved it. Uh, There was just something just so unique about it. um, So, so different. I mean, it's the, you know, just Serling's dramatic narrations and just the seriousness of the show mixed with the imagination and the mystery. Um, it, it was just one of those things. It, it didn't take very long for me to just uh, totally kind of get hooked on the show is I, I think a lot of twilight zone fans uh, would, would attest to as well.
0: Yeah. I I think the same way I, I like the twilight zone too. And, and you, you, you explained it well, I, I don't know that I'm into it as much as you are, but I was totally compelled by it when I was a youngster because it is creative, it is challenging. It's disturbing to a certain extent, which I think mm-hmm. excites us, right? It gets the endorphins going too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you're trying to figure out yourself and the world,
1: I think the Twilight Zone kind of helps, don't you? Oh, I I totally do, and um, in, in many ways, I think it's kind of in in some ways, it, it is a kind of perfect show. Um, for kind of like teenagers (laughs) too, Uh, teenagers and, and, you know, adults as well. But like you're saying, as you're, you know, developing and getting into more your teen years and your young adult years, you're starting to kind of question the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) around you and uh, some of its ideals. And of course, you know, you begin to realize that the world isn't just fun and games and it's, uh, you know, not... uh, you know, it's not pure, it's not innocent. Um, and, and The Twilight Zone, I, I think the other thing that I really loved about it, and I still love about it, is, you know, it really takes its, its viewers seriously. Um, it doesn't, I, I, you know, it doesn't condescend them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't um, try to, um, you know, just appeal to them in, you know, kind of sleazy ways, if you, if you will. Um, but it's it's a serious show that I think respects its viewers, respects its viewers' uh, intelligence and their abilities to you know critically think and, and you know and their ability to also yeah kind of be creative, imaginative, imaginative, thinkers as well. So
0: exactly, exactly. And and your your book, you you sort of use the twilight zone to understand american not sort of i think you directly use the twilight zone to understand post-war america right the the title of the book monsters on maple street the twilight zone and the post-war american dream i guess we're talking world war ii right mm-hmm. and uh, how does the twilight zone sort of do that for us how can it do that for us understanding po- the post-war american dream
1: well it's interesting because the more i got into this project um because i you know i had been a twilight zone fan of course you know starting in my teen years never really had the faintest idea that (laughs) uh this could kind of be the foundation for a serious kind of uh academic project that took many many years um but the more I researched it um, and really got into the background of the show and, and learning more about Rod Serling, um, you know, the more just intriguing it all was. Um, and it was interesting to find out as you know many Rod Serling fans know of course, but uh, Serling was kind of a latecomer to science fiction and fantasy. Um, it wasn't something he uh, was was writing. Uh, Throughout, you know, his earlier writing career, um, he wrote kind of dramatic teleplays, um, kind, you know, essentially kind of dramas, um, live dramas, of course. Um, and so, um, yeah, as sponsors began censoring uh, more and more uh, television scripts, not wanting to offend viewers, uh, Serling, you know, got increasingly frustrated with this and. Um, as most writers or, or artists, uh, you know, would when their work is edited and censored. So he saw, like, using the Twilight Zone as a way to still engage with uh, social issues and provide social commentary and social criticism, but just in a more kind of metaphorical way as a way to kind of elude um, censorship, if if that makes sense.
0: Totally makes sense, yeah. Definitely. So he was able to engage, uh, in, in a way, the questions of our society, the challenges of our society, to an extent that he wouldn't be if it was not in the context of a, f- of a fiction, of, of, you know, that, the fact that it was fiction and it was <laughs> horror, what have you, uh, allowed him that license that he wouldn't have otherwise.
1: Right, correct, and it's it's just you know one of those interesting things, and obviously this has evolved, but you know we're still kind of having this conversation around um you know things like social media and uh even yeah different television series and um you know uh just all sorts of media, right, but this kind of clash that we see oftentimes between writers and artists and um you know, essentially sponsors and, and advertisers. Like, this is still kind of a complex relationship. Um, and, you know, and, and you can respect it in a way. I mean, obviously sponsors have their objectives and, and businesses have their objectives, but writers have have theirs. And, um, you know, Rod Serling, you know, he said this on many occasions, but he really, his view of writers and uh, the type of writing he did. I mean, he he really saw it as crucial that writers highlight the social issues of their day and and really see their writing as vehicles of uh, social criticism. Um, so that's something that I really wanted to highlight because. You know, there's been so many great books on the Twilight Zone because, you know, it does have this wonderful committed following. You know, there's been obviously books like, you know, Mark Scott's Zakris' you know, Twilight Zone Companion. There's been great biographies, um, most recently Nick Parisi's uh, biography on Serling is great. Um, but I just really wanted to highlight that sort of part of it um because i felt like it it really had not been explored and and i felt like there was actually so much there um you know with the show and and i think you know when people have talked about it or when different twilight zone fans have talked about it it's all very kind of like casual and and there is this like recognition that oh yeah the twilight zone is this kind of subversive kind of show and you know pointing out different things going on in in america at the time but i i had never really seen a a very like you know committed um you know long-term sort of study of of that and and that's really uh you know what what ended up you know really inspiring me to to do it And
0: and again, we're talking about Monsters on Maple Street, The Twilight Zone, and The Post-War American Dream. It was just published in August of 2023, so it's only been out for several months. Is it getting some traction as you uh, look at the numbers?
1: Yes, it is. And, yeah, I see uh, a lot of uh, libraries, both public libraries and university libraries, carrying it, um, gotten some reviews, uh, both on the academic side but also just kind of on the popular press side and that's really always been my goal as well because uh, obviously I, I do work um in academia but i always wanted my work to really be more kind of a crossover type of work um, i i never really wanted to just write exclusively for <laughs> Uh, you know, kind of other academics. Um, you know, I, I really kind of wanted to reach that that general audience as well. And and fortunately, uh, yeah, the Twilight Zone too has just such a committed following and and such a um, you know loyal fan base. Um, so so that helps as well.
0: <laughs> For sure, a new book comes out about the Twilight Zone. All those folks who love the Twilight Zone are probably going to give it a shot, right? Um, so that yeah, that's a nice little uh, sort of market you have built in. Uh, yeah. Now, when when we talk about earlier how uh, Rod Sterling got away with some criticism and analysis of, of you know problems that are a bit tumultuous, let's say, in mm-hmm. our society, mm-hmm. because he used he put it in the context of fiction and, and horror mm-hmm. and what have you. Do you think he got away with it because? The censors, the the management of uh, you know the stations he, he was working for didn't get it, or they thought it was safe, uh, sort of you know shrouded in in fiction.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting, um, and I don't think I can say a hundred percent conclusively. Um, I would say in general, I, I would think that it's really more the former more so than the latter they didn't Um, get it or, or just kind of saw that okay the the context right the context is you know there there's aliens involved or this is set in outer space or there's some kind of supernatural element to it so that in many ways i think just um it you know they saw some of those elements and just therefore kind of took it as oh yeah this is you know just fantasy or whatever not, not necessarily taking the time to kind of like sit with it because obviously yeah that <laughs> that is the thing with the twilight zone too is it, it's a show that does kind of um it it requires in a sense some like you know concerted attention and 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 careful kind of like uh thought right right um for for viewers and and obviously i i think that some of that was just sort of glossed over um quite frankly i mean there were some things that uh sensors would would catch i mean real silly things too sometimes um even rod sterling talks about one episode um that's, uh, yeah, that takes place during World War Two. And it's about, uh, there's a British commander in it. Um, and, you know, they're, they're drinking tea, as you know, a lot of British folks do. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly said they, they edited that part out, because one of the sponsors w- um, uh, uh, was, uh, um, was selling coffee, right, right? Right. So so they're, they're, they're a coffee business. And so they switched it out for coffee, you know, silly things like that. So, I mean, you see the kind of, you see where their head's at in terms of what they're prioritizing. And, you know, there were certain things, of course, too, like, you know, racial things that I talk about. And, of course, that is really one of the the primary inspirations for the show um, was when Serling wrote a play uh, Noon on Doomsday, which was based around the Emmett Till murder and the acquittal of his killers, um, that teleplay got censored and you know edited in all kinds of ways, and so that is really one of the reasons Sterling went on to write the Twilight Zone. But there's but there's even a Twilight Zone episode, I am the Night, Color Me Black, where uh, a character is sentenced to be um, is sentenced to be lynched uh, because of Uh, you know, essentially defending themselves against uh, a Ku Klux Klan member. And the way he wrote it originally was that it was a a black character, right, who was defending himself against this Klan member, but they switched it to basically be a white character. So there were still things like that that happened, whether it was just, again, just you know, wanting to promote, <laughs> you know, coffee sales uh, in one episode or in another one, trying to, again, sort of skirt, um, you know, just maybe a bit too blatant, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, treatments of uh, racism mm-hmm. um, and, and racial violence in the United States. So, um, you know, he the show still did experience that. I mean, not anywhere near, um, you know, what certainly was experiencing prior to the twilight zone, but, um, you know, censors and sponsors did still like catch things, you know, once in a while and still change things once in a while. Um, but overall, um, right. I I think that in general, uh, they were just like, You know just saw it as fantasy and they also probably were reassured in a sense that or at least thought that this is what a lot of viewers would probably think too that this is um yeah this is some fantasy world and this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the united states um or our present world but of course it did (laughs) right so it's you know it's kind of that ability to suspend disbelief but um, for the viewers who are really engaged with it and, and really kind of um, thinking about the show, I, I think those connections were were quite, um, you know, evident.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and it's it very commendable in my view that he Rod Sterling was so driven to address racism and brutality in his society that he, you know, that would be a main. Uh, inspiration for him to, to write his plays and his, his teleplays, uh, his television show. I think that is again very commendable. So he was, I think it's safe to say, uh, at least on social issues, he's very liberal.
1: Uh, generally speaking, I, I would say that's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's the, you know that's bit, that would be a fair uh, kind of loose label um, to to apply to it for sure. Um, I think um li- liberal on, on issues such as you know seeing racism as a problem right and uh you know really promoting uh racial equality um certainly um it is just i would say in, in an even maybe broader sense uh, a a humanitarian <laughs> um right. and and really was and he was a world war ii veteran of course um You know, he fought in the Pacific theater, but he was very, um, you know, critical of, you know, war making and violence. And, yeah, you know, the, uh, you know, Eisenhower termed military industrial complex and uh, these sorts of things. Um, And saw, you know, concerns over, you know, just social inequality, wealth inequality, um, all these things. I, I think he was... He really wrote for, um, you know, the, the ordinary people of the world and, and is is kind of, you could say, in, in some sense, just a, a defender of, of ordinary folks, <laughs> even.
0: You know, it, it, recently, Norman Lear passed, as you know, and mm-hmm. he kind of was of that mentality, too, with his approach and uh, maybe his drive with television shows, uh, addressing some of the the social issues and problems we have in this country. So they're kind of a the similar ilk, it seems.
1: For sure. Yeah, I, I definitely see a lot of connections there. Uh, I definitely see a lot of connections. And um, Serling, again, and sadly, this is a, a testament to how young he was uh, when he died, because um, he died in 1975. He didn't make it to his 50th birthday. So um, He lived you know, kind of hard, didn't he? uh well yeah and, and obviously he went through you know world war ii and he definitely was a chain smoker which um uh obviously is is, is pretty hard on your your physical health <laughs> um and he had a series of heart attacks um which i'm sure were, were you know probably connected to that also connected to just stress um probably stress from the war stress of his lifestyle, you know, as a writer. I mean, it's very stressful um, life. He led there too. Um, so, uh, but yeah, Serling, he of course was alive, you know, during, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, crossed over um, in terms of their life trajectory and, and Serling. Yeah. I really had very, uh, you know, admirable uh, things to say uh in terms of norman lear and, and really admired his, his work and um yeah greatly supported it so um yeah i, I think he was one certainly who, who kind of took that torch you know so, somewhat after Sterling. um it was kind of a few years um after the twilight zone
0: yeah. Uh, um, thanks for making that connection. I appreciate it. Uh, it, yeah. it. I'm looking at some of the other areas that you focused on uh, well, you, in, in academia, your classes in particular. And I, I love the, the history of madness. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, history of madness. Um, so I, I also really have a great interest in the history of psychology and mental health, um, which it's great. Cause I, you know, was also able to kind of bring that into my book, you know, as well, of course, with, you know, the psychology of marketing and, um, even just kind of talking about, um, you know, the application of, you know, Freudian theory and, in, in, um, in marketing and things like that. Um, but I, I've also done, you know, research on in the past on like 19th century, uh, mental health reform and, and things like that. Um, but uh, so, this is something that yeah, I've I've been interested in for quite some time. I, I think that just the the history of, and and I call it the history of madness because of course, um, I, I go back, all all the way back into you know ancient times. So obviously pre, <laughs> pre psychiatry, pre psychology, um, long before any of these fields have been you know kind of fully developed um, but it's it's a really fascinating class I mean students have really taken to it and you know essentially the structure of the class and how it's organized is just looking at how madness has been defined uh, over time in, in different cultures uh, in, in different countries um, so how it's been defined, how it's been uh, treated, um, how it's been depicted uh, through culture, through like literature, through, through art, um, through music, um, all these different things through even, you know, movies. Um, so, so we look at all these things uh, and really take kind of a long view of it um, and kind of get into these uh, questions. You could call them kind of, you know, damned, eternal questions. <laughs> um in terms of, you know, kind of, yeah, how, how do we ultimately define madness and, and where does it come from? Is it really an individual thing or is it more of like a, a social thing? Is it more kind of socially caused? Is it caused by, you know, culture and, uh, and the pressures of society and, and all these things? So, so we look at all these different, um, you know, kind of approaches to it and explanations to it.
0: And have you drawn any conclusions, clear conclusions, as to the root of madness and what, what cultivates <laughs> madness?
1: Um, well, I, I mean, I, I do uh, kind of subscribe to the school that we're all a little mad here. <laughs> definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I would definitely say that, in general, I, um, I I'm definitely a bit more... Uh, empathetic or or I I lean a a bit more toward um, kind of social and cultural um, causes. I I think that, you know, um, we've, in a sense, um, we've hyper individualized, (laughs) um, you know, madness and and, and issues related to mental health. And and I think it's interesting because looking at different cultures in different time periods, Um, you you see that that is much less the case where, um, you know, it is more kind of community-based in in terms of seeing, in terms of views of health and also um, kind of solutions uh, to promoting it. (laughs) Um, And and I think we've really kind of hyper-individualized it. And um, and, and I think, unfortunately, I, I think a lot of people are, they feel, you know, disconnected. They feel isolated. They, they feel all these things, and I and I think that um that, that has a huge weight on on people psychologically. So I, I think looking at you know the social, cultural, familial uh, components I I think is is very very vital.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I agree. And and when you say hyper individualize it, if if I, what what do you can you expound on that?
1: Well I think just in terms of like you know the, like diagnosing people, right? Like the diagnostic labels um we use and it's and I guess another way to say it other than saying hyper individualize is you know and maybe a better way to say it is is we we decontextualize it. Mm-hmm. Right. So we we kind of put a label on it or we put a diagnostic um you know term on it. Um and oftentimes we're kind of missing the the broader context right of you know yeah like trauma or life experiences or you know family upbringing you know these things and um it's interesting because yeah we we do actually go into um and obviously i i am a historian and uh, you know that's how it is first and foremost but um but i think just studying just the controversies of these issues historically is, is very, um, uh, you know, rewarding and, and I think very important. So what, one of the things that we talked about, just like I'm sure you've heard um, people discuss some of the changing, you know, diagnostic terms, right, using the, in the DSM and, and, you know, going all the way back to your, the first DSM in the 1950s, again, things like Even homosexuality is like classified as a mental illness, right? Right. Um, So, you know, we, most of us would disagree with that, right? We would disagree with, you know, labeling that as a kind of mental disorder. Um, So getting into some of the controversies there, you know, these, these changing sort of definitions of what do we classify, you know, as, as a mental illness or mental disorder. But, um, You know, one of the other controversies that I think is interesting is um, later on um, in one of the later iterations of the DSM, I think it was the DSM-3 that that really um, took this to the next level, but really making things, you know, making diagnostic practices really symptom-based and um, really, um, you know, decontextualizing what, a particular, you know, patient or person was going through. Um, and it's interesting because there's, there's a book actually written by a couple um, psychologists that I use that's just called The Loss of Sadness. And um, I, I even think I, I bring in a little bit of this work um, in, into my book, in fact, um, because The Twilight Zone, there's, there's an episode uh, number 12 looks just like you uh where everyone is getting all those like makeovers and you know and everyone kind of is, is forced to become super beautiful and super handsome right um but another part of that episode is people have to take um if if they're you know whatever feeling you know somewhat sad or whatever you know they they just they drink a cup of instant smile right mm-hmm. so it just It just makes them feel instantly better, right? And it's just interesting, like, getting into some of these controversies and because really you see, you know, equating, um, you know, just kind of happiness with being mentally healthy. And, of course, that's not, I mean, that's not true, right? I mean, being mentally healthy is being able to experience, like, the full spectrum of, of emotions and, um, and, and really process, you know, things in, in a variety of ways. Um, but it, it's interesting because there's this book, The Loss of Sadness, that really talks about um, the, the over-diagnosing and over-prescribing um, that, that we've seen. So it's kind of over-diagnosing people with, for instance, like depression, right? Or um, And it's not to say that there aren't some people, obviously, with clinical depression or people that... Um, you know, really benefit from medication, but their whole point was that it's kind of, you know, it's it's it, it's really gone. Um, it's it's really become excessive, right? And it's what's a, also
0: important—it's an industry. Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah,
1: yeah for sure, it, it's it's an industry, and that's that's a huge part of it too. Absolutely, um, you know, the psychopharmaceutical industry, big time. Um, but I, I think and even in sort of a, a deeper cultural sense and social sense, I, it's, it's why I also love their book title, uh, The Loss of Sadness, because it, it is kind of interesting to think, you know, you know, it's, it's it is kind of sad to lose sadness. Right. It's like, you know, we 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 need that. Right.
0: Like yes. We
1: need that as as part of our human Experience in, in human condition. Um, and yeah, it, it would be a shame to lose it, <laughs> right? And so the ways we've pathologized, uh, you know, just basic, you know, human sadness, and, and especially if we're relying on symptoms and not looking at context, which again, they were really pointing that out, where it's like, you know, it's important to like consider. Um, you know, course of duration and, and time and what's going on in you know a, a person's life, you know, uh, over the weeks and months, etc. Um, but obviously, that's more time consuming. You need more time with a patient and, and all that. And obviously, yeah, a, a lot of it is our kind of quick fix society. We we want quick answers, we want quick fixes, and and obviously, you know, diagnosing people very uh, kind of eagerly and and uh prescribing people drugs very eagerly um is 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 certainly a trend we we've seen um you know develop in in the past you know 50 plus years um but i just think it's interesting because i i you know like i said i mean i i do bring some of this in um with the twilight zone even because it's it's something that i think serling and and Many other writers who contributed to the show. I think they were, they were putting their finger on it. You know, mm-hmm. in, in some way, like they were seeing that, you know, because of this consumeristic society, and you know, we just, we are just um, kind of inundated with advertisements and images of, you know, just super happy people who are just, you know, driving convertibles and, you know, uh, just living these amazing lives and, you know, just happy all the time. And we feel like there's something wrong with us if we're not feeling like that, right? Right. Or, or we're not feeling like that all the time, which of course is, um, you know, com- completely skewed. Um, you know, it's it, it, it would be weird <laughs> to, to, to feel like that all the time, just to feel like, the the ecstasy of you know from you know consumption or, or you know being a, a consumer, um, so but I think it, it was something that uh, yes Sterling and, and many others uh, took took seriously and, and they saw that um, you know th- this isn't healthy <laughs> like it's it's not healthy to um, basically kind of have this pressure or, or have this idea in our society that yeah, people just need to be, you know, bubbly and giddy all the time. And I think, you know, we see that even today with, um, I mean, not to get into all of this, but but obviously even just like pressures with regard to social media, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and people needing to point out, especially to young people who use social media, like it's why adults really try to tell, um, you know, their, their kids or, or just, you know, their students, whoever that you know what you see on social media isn't entirely real like we we, we need to be reminded of that because everyone kind of posts these images and um you know different things they're they're doing in, in their life and so much of it is this kind of it is almost like that sort of just happy ecstatic consumer um sort of culture like reflected back where it's like you know look at my life, it's amazing, you know, kind of thing. And, um, But obviously, yeah, um, you know, life is more dynamic than, than that and, and should be.
0: <laughs> so. Right, right. And and on top of it, I, I think a lot of the younger folks who are in, enthralled by social media, their attention span to sit down and, and delve into something more complicated like The Twilights so or more challenging, uh, you know, like a, a feature-length film that has... Uh, complicated characters and and storylines, it's limited because of the short attention span that is exercised, you know, or the the long attention span that's not exercised when you're totally on, most of the time, on social media. So, you know, the writing on the wall is not so good, in my view, based on Mm -hmm. the younger folks uh, being so uh, immersed in, in social media. Um, I just wanted to make that point. And I love some of these these lines. We're almost out of time talking with you, which has been a fascinating conversation, by the way. David Brokaw, historian, author, professor, among other things, talking with us from his place uh, in Tempe, Arizona, in between grading finals. I uh, appreciate you taking the time out. But a cup of instant smile, you know, I think that's... <laughs> I, I I love that, and, and the loss of sadness. Some of these titles and ideas that come from... Um, our culture today and, and back in Rod Sterling's day, they're all still very much um, compelling and prescient as we go through our, our, our day-to-day in Western society here, in particularly in the United States of America. And in the last of the closing moments, as we come uh, toward the end of this year, into a new year, what are you up to and what are you hoping for, for yourself and just generally?
1: Uh. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I, <laughs> you know, in, in the most general sense, I, I, I would like to uh, continue to, to experience uh, living, uh, you know, in uh, this dynamic human condition <laughs> that, that we all find ourselves in. Um, but, um, you know, professionally, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I mean, obviously, this book just came out in, in August, so I plan to um, you know definitely do some more you know book talks and, and things like that. I um, I actually have something uh, a book talk scheduled um, in Tucson uh, at the University of Arizona, um, you know, in a few months. Um, but as far as like future projects, um, you know, it's you know, there, there's definitely a, a few things. Uh, that I could see myself uh, focusing on. Um, And and you, of course, uh, you know, kind of mentioned this in one of your messages, but any sort of contemporaries that uh, could be compared to to Sterling and things like that, or or The Twilight Zone. um, I I definitely find the work of Jordan Peele uh, very compelling. Um, You know, his, his films, you know, Get Out, uh, and and us and of course he even uh, you know hosted um, uh, you know the the Twilight Zone reboot um, as well um, so I think his work is really great Charlie Brooker who, who does uh, Black Mirror yeah I like um, I like I like both of those those guys they're great <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and, and I think that they are like real kind of torchbearers if you will um, to excuse the, the cliche phrase perhaps but um but yeah i i really see them kind of trying to accomplish a a lot of things that that the twilight zone was trying to do and and just trying to get people to, to think differently to um you know be skeptical of um you know different things in our modern life whether it's you know technology and all of its you know wonderful benefits you know to just maybe be skeptical of some of those things um sometimes and um i think that their their work is so great i I, you know could definitely find it rewarding uh to yeah focus on on some of their um films and, and and uh tv uh series uh you know more uh, in the future. Um, other than that, other than kind of media-related stuff, I, I also like, and this is connected to the mental health piece. But another huge, huge um, kind of part of how mental health has been kind of marketed, if you will, um, and how it's been promoted is through the self-help industry, mm. um, mm-hmm. which which is just huge and in many ways it it really kind of uh parallels a a lot of the time um that i focus on with with the twilight zone you know self-help uh books and the self-help industry i I think really started to um just really take off um you know mid 20th century and obviously it's it's just kind of ballooned (laughs) um since that time i mean it's it's so huge um it just seems to get bigger and bigger almost with each passing year. Um, and that's
0: a good thing. No, right.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, it's, it's complicated, right. Cause I, I, I think, uh, you know, there are some really great uh, self-help authors and, and self-help books, you know, out there um, that, you know, genuinely have, uh, I think, helped people and brought more awareness and things like that. But, yeah, I, there's also, of course, been a lot of, you know, problematic, <laughs> um, you know, works. And um, I, I think just looking at how that industry has evolved over time and what people, like, what sort of ideas have been promoted in the self-help industry. But I think it's also, like, again, a testament to the fact that, you know, we're, you know, we still kind of struggle socially, Right. Where, you know, people are, you know, in in this supposed, you know, paradise or or whatever of, um, you know, American consumption, that you know, despite being told that we're having our our dreams fulfilled in in all these different ways, um, you know, people are still feeling like something is really lacking, right? And 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 they need, you know, they need help in, in some sort of way. They need support in some sort of way. So. I think it's it's really a testament to that as well, um, that there are just things kind of socially and culturally that um, you know a, a lot of people just aren't getting certain needs met, which is why um, you know self helpism, if you will, has uh, uh, not just taken off, but it it just um, it becomes a bigger and bigger industry. Um, so I think just looking at sort of how that industry has evolved and, and looking at some of the ideas within it um, and connecting it, again, just sort of to broader, you know, cultural and social themes, kind of like I did with The Twilight Zone. I, I think that would be an interesting <laughs> project, too. Um,
0: sounds, it sounds very interesting. And uh, I look forward to reading and following your work as time goes on. And I'd love to have you on the program again, Dr. David Brokow. It's been a pleasure talking with you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. very insightful.
1: Well, thank you so much, EW. Yeah, I I, I really love the conversation. Thank you again for, for having me. I'd be happy to come back anytime.
0: Oh, yeah, we'll be reaching out to you for sure. And uh, have, have a wonderful holiday and good luck with the finals.
1: Yeah, have a great holiday. Thank you.
0: Ciao.
1: Ciao. <laughs>
2: Well it's Christmas time again
3: Decorations
2: are on
3: by the fire
2: Everybody's singing
3: It's gonna get down.
2: And Christmas is a rocking time. Put your body next to mine. Underneath the mistletoe we go. We go. down
3: a block little kids start to rock
2: Christmas is a rocking time put your body next to mine underneath the mistletoe we go we go whoa, whoa. Merry Christmas time come and find Happy and they're by your fire. I hope you have a good one. I hope Mama gets a shopping done and it's a Christmas.
0: Tobacco. It feels like a twilight zone when I look into my soul as often as I can when my courage is stronger than my escapist delusion. It is very enjoyable to smoke cigarettes that you hand roll in the office while looking into the sky and trees and mountains. The hawks fly high with impressive wing span and the barn swallows jump from branch to bush to sunlight. I smoke my pipe or a fag, incognito.
2: I'm a play for the Christmas. I stood outside a department store. A gang of kids. Came-